This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, June 20th, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. The Islamic State seeks more than terrorism. They seek to hold and govern territory. And doing so requires money to pay fighters and carry out operations. At a Cato Institute event in May, the Rand Corporation's Howard J. Schatz discussed what he believes are the relevant metrics for understanding and ultimately defeating the so-called Islamic State. The group that calls itself the Islamic State really became known to most people in June 2014 when it conquered Mosul. But it's been in Iraq and in the Middle East quite a long time. And what I want to do in my 25 minutes is give you first some some background about the group so that we all understand who these people are and what they've been doing. I'll talk about how they've been operating for more than a decade with the same basic structure, same philosophy, same goals, and really same bureaucracy and same management. They've been rational about their administration. They've been careful about their spending. They've been diversified in their revenue sources. And we see they have this tremendous continuity and this tremendous ability to survive under great pressure, to remain and to regenerate as they have. And so I'll, I'll do that too. And then I'll I'll talk to you about its current operations and its current sustainability. And in case anybody has to run out, I'll say that uh, my view is that without outside military pressure, so we're seeing some of that now, but without outside military pressure, I think what they call the caliphate is sustainable for any period of time we care about. And that in the longer run, without better law enforcement, local law enforcement, intelligence, and a political accommodation among the major players, they can be there almost indefinitely, at least as long as their leadership can recruit and field a membership. Uh, Because we've seen in the past that even after a loss of territory, they will continue to remain in place and then to infiltrate and to assassinate and to terrorize uh, to a great extent many different places. So let me start with their history. They really have their origins in, in Jordan with a a uh, terrorist named Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, who uh, was part of a group there, uh, went and got training in Afghanistan, and then came into Iraq around 2002. And in 2004, he swore allegiance to al-Qaeda. And that was the start of al-Qaeda in Iraq. They never called themselves al-Qaeda in Iraq. They were al-Qaeda in the land of the two rivers uh, and, and one other variation of that. But they came to be what we called al-Qaeda in Iraq. Even, even at that time, there was discussion between Zarqawi and uh, al-Qaeda in Afghanistan and then in Pakistan about an Islamic state. Right? Now, a coalition airstrike killed Zarqawi in 2006, but two new leaders emerged, uh, one of whom was an Egyptian, one of whom uh, was an Iraqi. There's, for some period, we didn't know whether this person actually existed, but it turns out he did exist, and some people say he was quite effective. In 2006, they declared the Islamic State of Iraq. Right? So what we see today really is an outgrowth of what is now 10 years old. Right? These two leaders were again killed in a coalition operation in 2010, and this is when the current leadership emerged, in particular Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, who was a veteran not only of the group, but also of a prison camp that, uh, that the US and the coalition maintained called Camp Buka, where many of their members were imprisoned for a time. Uh, Baghdadi moved forces uh, clandestinely into Syria in 2011, 
And that was the core of what is now known as uh, Jabhat al-Nusra, which is the official al-Qaeda affiliate in Syria. Jabhat al-Nusra and Baghdadi split in 2013. Uh, the Islamic State of Iraq overtly moved into Syria, declared itself the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, or of the Levant, or of al-Sham. And then in 2014, uh, after taking over Mosul and many other cities, declared itself the Islamic State. Uh, I and others at RAND have been looking at this group since about 2007. Jake has been looking at them for a long time, too. And so we've been looking at them mostly using their documents. Uh, we recovered their documents on the battlefield. And they're quite assiduous about record keeping. And you can learn a lot not only about their operations, but about their personnel uh, and, and how and their reporting requirements as well. And, and so what we've done, what a lot of what I'll say about their past is based on their personal rosters, their financial records, their correspondence, their expense reports, revenue spreadsheets, organization charts. Let's start with, with their overall organization. And you'll see there's tremendous continuity, and I'll keep coming back to this. This group has not gone away, and this group is not new. Their top level looked a lot like al-Qaeda's top level, and this makes sense because Zarqawi trained in Afghanistan, and this actually may be the optimal way to organize a terrorist group. But what they then did with this kind of structure of a leader and of department heads, a military head, an intelligence head, an administrative head, what they then did was they then replicated that at lower geographic levels. So unlike al-Qaeda, they, they went from the start uh, to organize themselves to govern territory. And we saw this in Anbar province in Iraq. Uh, this is the largely Sunni province that borders Syria and Jordan. We saw that there was an overall provincial emir, that's their leader, and then we saw they had divided Anbar into six sectors, and each sector had an emir also. And in the province, there were emirs with, each, with specialties. And in each sector, there were emirs with specialties as well. Uh, these emirs proliferated at one point. Anbar, uh, the Euphrates River runs through Anbar. So one sector we looked at had an emir of boats. Apparently, he was responsible for procuring and repairing all the boats they used. Uh, but that was a case of, we think, a hyper-specialization, which they corrected from. Uh, we, also, we also learned that, at least by 2008, and probably earlier, they had already subdivided Iraq into 31 different sectors. And they, these sectors were largely what you see them controlling today. Or certainly, if you look at maps of their control at their peak power in 2014, and you looked at the areas in Iraq where, where the Islamic State had people or had taken control of cities, these were the areas they had marked on, uh, on their written description of their sectors from 2008 or before. And for each sector, they defined what the leadership would be. So there would be an overall emir, there would be uh, an Islamic law emir, there would be a military emir. So Islamic law to govern the group and to govern, to set the rules for the area, military to continue the fight. And for each sector, they also designated that there should be a media emir. So again, right, the continuity that I'll keep talking about, we know them today from their videos, from their beheading videos, from their, 
their, their videos of their, their troops with the black flag in armored vehicles or in trucks driving down the streets of Raqqa or of, of Mosul. This is not new for them. Media was extremely important to them as early as 2008 and even before that. And, and we also see from their documents that they listed whether these positions were filled or not. Now, 2008, uh, the coalition was conducting a withering campaign against them. And we were, in particular, targeting media emirs. And for these 30 sectors, we have data for 30 sectors, uh, no media emir positions were filled. So there was some effective, uh, our operations were effective in cutting off their leadership. But if we go back and think about the committee structure, they were very good at bringing new people in when top leaders were eliminated. So that's their organizational structure and their territorial control. We also looked at their human capital, uh, their, their personnel policies, okay? And uh, we had data on skills and on nationality. And what we found was they were very rational about how they allocated people, right? So uh, the suicide bombers were almost, in, in our data work, were all foreigners because the foreigners, they were the true believers. They had to actually make an effort to join this group. Right? The people who did intelligence and security, the people who really needed local knowledge, the people who uh, did extortion operations against businesses, they were all Iraqis. And again, don't forget, ISIL, the, the Islamic State, is in Syria and Iraq, but we're dealing with Iraq now. Um, they were all Iraqis because foreigners stick out. Right? And if you're doing intel or you're doing security, you don't want to stick out. What we also found, and this is quite relevant to today, most of the foreigners were in administrative or military roles. Right? So it wasn't just that foreigners were suicide bombers. Foreigners were coming and they were strongly involved in the fight and in running the organization, much as we see today. We also uh, found salary data. So I'll give you kind of real time, how do we, how do we judge the group today when all we know about is the group from yesterday, is the group doing anything different? You remember, so first of all, they did pay salaries. They paid salaries then, they pay salaries now. And when ISIL took over in 2014, maybe in, in, in accord with this view that you know, they were a danger to the United States, there were all kinds of reports that they're paying people $1,000 a month, they're paying $400 a month. And this just didn't make any sense to us. Because what we found was they had a pretty set salary schedule, and they were paying people, fighters, about $40 a month, sometimes 50 You get money for each wife. You get money for each child, each dependent parent, each unmarried sister. Right? And so when we finally started getting data about their salaries now, we found something very similar. So. Abu Hajar, one of, their, uh, one of their top leaders, was captured. And he came out in the media and said, well, actually, we're paying fighters about $65 and then about half that for each wife and child. And we're not paying foreigners anything. So this really wipes away the $1,000 per fighter. What we now know as well is that their salary schedule, at least as of December of 2015 or, or January around there, was $50 a fighter. $35 a wife, I'm sorry, yeah, $50 a wife, $35 a child, 
uh, $50 for what they call a sabaya, which is uh, a sex slave, one of, the, one of the Yazidi women that they captured and then sold, $35 for a child by a sex slave. So, so, so really, um, the salaries now are very similar to the salaries then. They tend to be low and flat. There is some differentiation now, depending on uh, skill. But most people make this low, flat salary. They sometimes also paid rent, sometimes provided food, other, other benefits. Uh, now we get to the fundraising. And uh, I'll say continuity once again. What were they doing in 2004, 2005? Well, they were extorting businesses. They were raising, first of all, the continuity is they raise money internally, right? So in 2014, we were started to get, we started to get a lot of questions. How do we stop money flowing from the Gulf to uh, this Islamic state? And our answer was, well, you don't because they're not getting a lot of money from the Gulf, right? They are raising money internally many different ways. What did they do 2004, 2005 in Anbar province? Uh, selling stolen cars, uh, stealing money from Shia, uh, selling other stolen goods. 2007, uh, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, Islamic State of Iraq, running, running a racket out of the Beji uh, refinery, which is a refinery in Iraq north of Baghdad. Um, and what, what they make, the estimates they made about a billion dollars. All insurgents made, I think, about uh, about a billion dollars over the course of, of two years. This was not just Al-Qaeda in Iraq. What did we find in 2009, 2010 in Mosul? Well, they were making deals with the government so that they would get a certain percentage of construction contracts. Right? And they were stealing uh, uh, real estate deeds and reselling them. So, you know, much like a criminal organization, the big change now is that a lot of that had to be done clandestinely. Now they have territory. So they have many different uh, avenues of raising money. And I'll get to that when I talk more about the group today. We also saw, uh, and they do this today, we saw that they reallocated money within provinces and across provinces. So each province that raised money would send 20% to the center. When you read about them today, you'll find something about the general treasury or the Beit al-Mal. This existed for quite a long time, 20% up, up to Mosul, which is where it was 2008 through 2010. And then Mosul headquarters would reallocate, which they're doing now. And so we would see money would go from Baghdad up to Mosul, and Mosul would then send money back to Baghdad to fund operations. So very centralized, very uh, concerned about how they manage their money. Right. So let me talk about ISIL today. And I'm going to talk about them in, in two, different, uh, two, two different periods. One is before the operation that's known as Tidal Wave 2, and the other is after the operation known as Tidal Wave 2. So, so Tidal Wave 2 is an operation that the coalition started running around October. And it was a much more intensive bombardment of their oil facilities and uh, their cash storage houses. And it's been having some effect. I'll get to that. Before that period, 2014 to, uh, to late 2015, what did they have? Well, they stole a lot of money from banks, right? Estimates really vary. We can say, if we want to be conservative, we can say between 500 million and a billion dollars, okay? They were making 
uh, $40 million a month from oil, at least through February 2015 and probably longer after that. They were making money from gas deals with Syria. They, uh, Islamic State controls most of the oil and gas in Syria. They were selling the gas or shipping the gas to generating plants for the Assad regime. And in return, uh, they were getting much of that electricity. And they were also getting money and employees to, to take care of the gas plants. They also had other resources. They had a phosphate mine in Iraq. They had manufacturing plants in Al-Qaim in Iraq. Until the summer of 2015, the Iraqi government was paying salaries to its employees who lived in Islamic State territory. And the Islamic State was skimming those salaries as well. We don't know how much it was making. Uh, you know, it could be 20 million have been some reports. Hundreds of millions have been other reports. They were making some money kidnapped for ransom. Uh, those reports have been 20 to 45 million in 2014. Again, really, really sh shaky numbers here. And then, um, and then artifacts, antiquities. Okay. So, um, and again, there is it 10 million or is it 100 million? We we don't really know. Right. So now now we get to what happened after tidal wave two. Well, if we if the the United States government Treasury has been quite forthcoming about uh, about data that they have been collecting, and so I take them at their word when they say that ISIL is probably making about 250 million a year from oil today, and about 360 million a year from taxation. So that's about 50 million dollars a month. Right. Now, I should, I should add, so Tidal Wave 2, what happened? Why are they making so much less? Well, we destroyed oil trucks. That's the only way to move oil there. We destroyed uh, major oil facilities, which they can rebuild, but it takes time. And we blew up cash storage houses. Right? So they're, they're financially a bit more constrained now. Um, I should add that that estimate of $50 million a month is trustworthy, but... But the Wall Street Journal at the end of April reported that ISIL is still making almost a million dollars a day from oil, right? And that was largely unsourced. But, you know, very credible reporters and credible newspaper. The New York Times reported uh, recently, I think it was December, that they were making on the order of 800 to 900 million from taxation schemes. So, you know, let's go, let's be conservative. Let's go with Treasury, 50 million a month, okay? Now, I'll go into a lot of their revenue raising, but now let me give you a first hint about why I think this is sustainable for a while. If they're making 50 million a month, we know they're kind of, they're, we know I told you their salary <coughs> schedule, right? Let's assume that, that each of their members, and this is very conservative, let's assume each of their members has one wife, three children, one sex slave, and one child by that sex slave. On their salary schedule, that's $290 a month for that family, all right? You give me, you give me 50,000 fighters, which is probably more than they have, that's 14 and a half million a month. So you can see the imbalance. They're, they're pulling in, according to Treasury, 50 million a month. Their personnel costs are 15 million a month. That gives them a lot of extra money to buy munitions, to do social services if they want, to repair, buy oil equipment, repair their fields. You know, 
Are they spending some of their reserves from the banks? Maybe, maybe their budget is higher than 50 million a month. We don't know. But it seems to me that they have a cushion. So, so now we look at revenue. One of the big puzzles, we're puzzling about this. We don't, we don't understand quite how this works. They are taxing people in their, uh, in their territory. And I think Jake will give a very good presentation about why ultimately this will lead them you know, to, to ruin. Because ultimately, you just keep taxing the same people. If markets are closing, if the economy is bad, people are going to run out of money. So we've really been trying to think, how, how is this sustainable? How, can, how are they getting money from outside? So let me go through their various sources of revenue without dollar totals but at least suggest why this could be sustainable for some time without more action against them. So antiquities, that's certainly sustainable. Everywhere you go in Iraq and Syria, you can find antiquities. And you can sell them on the international market for something. They have a very diversified tax structure. Some of that's going to run out, right? So an example of some of their taxes uh, you know, they wanted to tax students one time in Hawija, Iraq, for textbooks. Well, you can only tax students so many times until they run out of money, right? They charge in, in Mosul, they were charging shopkeepers uh, 2500 a year uh, for rent in one of their buildings. 60 shopkeepers, 2500 a year. You know, that's not a lot of money, but it's, it's money. You can do something with that. Uh, they were charging 750 dinars, Iraqi dinars, that's about 50 to 75 cents, to park in the parking lots they control in Mosul. Right? So they have all these different local sources of revenue, some sustainable, some not. Uh, but we do know that people who live in their territory are getting remittances from outside, family members. Again, the value of those remittances, we really don't know. Right? They're charging, and this is a very sustainable source, they're charging transit taxes on trucks that pass through their territory. Why would trucks pass through their territory? Well, because in Syria, wheat grain is grown in the east, outside of their territory and in their territory, and people live in the west. And so you need to truck that grain through ISIL territory to the west. At the same time, in the west, vegetables and fruit are grown, as well as pharmaceuticals are manufactured. You need to truck those through ISIL territory to the Kurds and others who live in the east. So they're getting transit taxes. What are they getting? Reports vary. $300 a truck, $1,000 a truck, $1,700 a truck. And this is all money, as long as it's just passed through, coming to them from outside. And those estimates, by the way, in January 2016, it was estimated they were getting $140 million a year from this trade. No way to verify that. Um, they also own considerable resources. So they have a lot of Syrian cotton production, which can be sold outside of their territory. They have uh, cement factories, flour factories, asphalt factories, uh, canned food, uh, water bottling, textiles. So the puzzle is, are they selling it outside their territory? My, my educated guess is probably. These are long established trade routes. People are willing to buy and sell and long-established smuggling routes as well. Right? And finally, the other part of the puzzle is they can control their expenses. Uh, the news reports are that they cut their salaries in half. Uh, we have seen them historically 
vary their salary payments. They'll delay salaries. They'll cut expenses other ways. So, so if they lose revenue, they can go on for some time. So what does this, what does this mean for, for taking care of them? Uh, I guess the, the punchline I would, I would come to is we do have military activity against them. And the plan is to uh, build up that military activity, mostly using local forces, eventually root them out of Mosul, root them out of their Iraqi capital, root them out of Raqqa, their capital of, of their entire caliphate. And, and, and that's really, I think, the right way to do this. Uh, we would also need to stop their deals with the Assad government in Syria, uh, although that's going to be much harder to do. And the reason that this military pressure is important is because for the time we care about, as long as they have this caliphate, as long as they're able to operate, uh, they will cause misery to the people who live in their caliphate. Uh, whether that's in the U.S. interest to care about is uh, individual preference. They will be able to carry out mass casualty, mass casualty attacks outside their territory, as they have this week in Baghdad, 200 people killed so far. And they will continue to host uh, foreign fighters who can then be deployed, host, host and train foreign fighters who can then be deployed back to Europe, uh, less likely to the United States, more likely back to Europe to cause harm to our allies. I would say there's, there's one other point, though, in that, and, and this, this is kind of a caution. This is what makes the problem much harder for the long term. I said at the beginning that they were very good at remaining and regenerating. We know from, from the terrific work of, of, of Craig Whiteside and from other work that they really are quite systematic when they're on the ropes, when they're underground. They're quite systematic about how to retake territory. right? It's a pretty coherent plan. They will infiltrate a town. They will assassinate representatives of the legitimate government, be it policemen or government officials. They will make connections, social connections, with town leaders. They will make connections with the mosques, and then they will move in militarily. And this, to combat that will really take much better law enforcement in Iraq and Syria much better intelligence about their operations, so the trust of the population to, to inform on them. And then a political accommodation. As long as there are populations in Syria and Iraq who view the Islamic State as a better option than the governments in Baghdad or Damascus, the Islamic State will have staying power in one form or another. If not as a state with territory, then as a clandestine terrorist group that can cause a tremendous amount of damage. Thank you. Howard J. Schatz is co-author of Foundations of the Islamic State, Management, Money, and Terror in Iraq, 2005 to 2010. He spoke at the Cato Institute in May. Subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Google Play, and with Cato's iOS app. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.